Oh, I want to send you a picture of a thing I consume, Sean. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh recreate the mayhem album cover in your living oh, room God. with peter god i wish <laughs> no i just bought another guitar i didn't need oh okay cool i sent you a picture of it Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, longtime connoisseur and archivist of the sounds of roaches scurrying across trash can lids. (laughs) (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy, and I just engineered a new album, fellas. Ooh, which album might this be? It's a Lee Hazelwood, Nancy Sinatra tribute album. It's uh, in the the vein of third wave ska, though, and we're calling it "These Vans Are Made for Skanking." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a classic, ready to be unleashed. Yeah, it's so good, <laughs> guys. It's so good. Just wait till you hear it. You don't even know. I'm glad to hear you have. Yeah, another occupation, Jeremy. Yeah, they're paying me lots of money. <laughs> it's so good. You got to hear it. They're paying me so much. Congrats, my dude. I am co-host Peter Cook. And when I get home to you, I find my tiredness is through. <laughs> that was the uh, original lyric that John Lennon had written down for A Hard Day's Night. And he was with his friend, British journalist Maureen Cleave, and she saw that line and was just kind of like, that's pretty lukewarm. That's kind of weak. And so he changed it to the more suggestive. When I get home to you, I find the things that you do make me feel all right. Oh. And just a little bit later in this episode, we will hear that song in its final and ultimate form. (laughs) In the best form that it ever attained. Yes. Well, it's not. Tuesday, why are we here? I'm confused. What month is it? It's April. It's the first of April. Interesting. Oh no, text. Let's let's just let's just lay the cards on the table. So last year we made an April Fool's episode. We played around a little bit with Lynn Larson and his Organ Stop Pizza record. And I, I would say the episode was was pretty well received. People liked it. However, we felt a little weird talking bad about an artist since we try to normally keep it positive, aside from Jeremy and his 10cc opinions. <laughs> or Sean and his Neil Diamond. Exactly. We have our moments. <laughs> and we decided that if we were going to do another April Fool's episode, we didn't want to repeat the same formula. The joke had been done once Never again. So I came up with this idea to do this sort of meta April Fool's episode. We are looking at a record that has been the butt of many jokes for decades. It is critically maligned 
and yet there is a strong cult following, and we're going to examine why. We are listening to Mrs. Miller's greatest hits but, from but, 1966. But Sean, we, we can't feature greatest hits albums. <laughs> Breaking all the rules. We don't do comps. <laughs> it's not a comp. It's a clever marketing scheme by Capitol Records. Anyway, some of you may be familiar with this infamous dollar bin oddity. And we're going to start with the hit. This actually charted at the bottom end of the Billboard Hot 100, side A, track one, Downtown. Making you lonely, you can always go downtown. You've got worries and all the noise and the hurry seem to help. I know downtown. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the light so much brighter there? You can forget all your troubles, forget all your Surround you, there are movie shows downtown. Maybe you know some little places to go where they never close downtown. Just listen to the rhythm of a gentle bossa nova. You'll be dancing with them too before the night is over. Happy again, the lights are much brighter there. You can forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. love artists inspired by Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Mrs. Miller was inspired by Florence Foster Jenkins, but the comparisons have been made many, many times. Do you want to tell people who Florence Foster Jenkins was real quick? Yeah, she was a socialite, I think from the 1930s, from New York, who, you know, had... The funds to record songs and wasn't great at singing, but it would perform because of her status. And they made a movie about it a, a few years ago, starring Meryl Streep as Florence Foster Jenkins. And it was actually a pretty good movie. I heard it was good. She was like uh, got some awards for her performance in that, I believe. Yeah, it was quite good. Yeah, but so I, obviously that would be an, an easy comparison to... Mrs. Miller. True. So were you guys familiar with Mrs. Miller at all before this? Yeah, I was. Former guest of the show, Kurt, a.k.a. Useless Eater, 
uh, popped that into one of his DJ sets at a record store day, probably close to 10 years ago. And that was the first time I had ever heard of Mrs. Miller. And I, for some reason, I, 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 I think it's fun, the album, and I, for some reason, don't have a copy yet. This is a reminder that I need to pick up a copy. You must. It's. I mean, you know, it's kind of like it's. It almost sounds like a precursor to Trout Mask Replica, <laughs> just less <laughs> less inherently cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I don't know if it's if it's less cool. <laughs> I'd say it's a pretty pretty even between Mrs. Miller and Don Van Vliet myself. There you go. <laughs> You've corrected me. Yeah, setting the record straight. Uh, Jeremy, you were not as familiar, I do believe. Yeah, I'd heard you mention wanting to do an episode on it, and then I forgot about it, as I do most things that are said to me. Words just flow right back out of my brain. It's really sad. But I... Listened to it before this episode, but very intentionally did not look into what this was about so that you could surprise me with this information on microphone. My initial impressions, though, are like it's clearly they tried to make it to like make fun of her, like the jokes on her. I'm left feeling like it's kind of fun and silly and has me sort of like reevaluating if like music needs to be made by the most masterful performers of it and you know what's the value in a more like human flawed sound coming out that i think in in different genres you know that's already been a question people have kind of looked at and addressed and thought about so um yeah perfect that's that's where i'm at with it (laughs) despite not having the you know academic knowledge of this artist you still have kind of cut right to at least part of the heart of this conversation so let's dive in and learn about mrs miller shall we yeah what in what year is this this album this is this is 1966 okay yeah so how did this come to be (laughs) that's a good question and maybe we don't really know the answer to it. And maybe that's okay. Real quick, though, my experience with Mrs. Miller, you know, Kurt may have been the one to turn me on to Mrs. Miller as well. Or maybe I'd just seen it around and then he was the first person that was like, no, dude, this record's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, my initial impressions of it were like, yes, this is silly. It's like obviously intentionally supposed to be presented as like, wow, she's so bad at singing. This is unlistenable. And yet, The record is so fun. This record makes me happy in a way that so many albums do not, that are, you know, much more talented musicians, much more interesting, quote unquote, better songwriting, all that stuff. This record has something special to it. And for a long time, I've wanted to learn more about just what's going on with Mrs. Miller. How did this record come to be? Why are there so many copies of it out there? Let's learn about it. So... Mrs. Miller was born Elva Ruby Connus on October 5th, 1907 in Joplin, Missouri. She was married to John Miller, who was a professional investor. They were married in 1934. He was uh, about 30 years her senior. Wow. Shortly after that, they moved to Claremont, California, 
and she studied voice, music, and composition at Pomona College. Go Sage Hens. She uh, was that makes sense actually. When I was listening to it, I did note like she had a very clean, controlled vibrato to her voice. It mm-hmm. made me like think, now this person like actually is trained vocally in some way. Yeah. She is. Yeah, she has heavy training, and we'll get into that a little bit more. So in addition to her music interest, she was heavily involved with local charities and community projects and her local church. She sang in the choir. She also self-released several records that she primarily distributed to friends, family, and also local orphanages. She mainly sang gospel, classical, and children's songs. And you can tell by the way she's singing, like, you know, she wasn't normally singing pop music. She has like that kind of classical and gospel vibrato to her voice. And that was the kind of music she was more familiar with. But one day in the early 60s, while she was in the studio recording one of her, you know, vanity self-release projects, she was overheard by the arranger Fred Bach, who took a liking to her music or her as a person and suggested that she start recording some more modern material and specifically suggested the song we just heard, Petula Clark's Downtown. When he got her to record the song, he then took it around to a few labels to try and generate some interest. And the song was eventually heard by a DJ by the name of Gary Owens, who later became the announcer for the Laugh-In show. He played her music on his radio show in about 1960, and also included her on a limited-run comedy album that he put out. Then, a few years later, she gets signed to Capitol Records in 1965. Like the the home to the Beatles American releases. (laughs) One of the biggest record labels in the world. And uh, Fred Bach, who we just mentioned, was her manager and arranger at this point. So, like, they have had a relationship musically that is going on for years at this point. So the record is released in 1966, April of 1966, and is reported to have sold as many as possibly 250,000 copies in the first three weeks. As we said, that song that we just heard downtown peaked at number 82 on the Billboard Hot 100. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of copies, especially that's not incredibly high on the charts, but clearly people had an itch for this. <laughs> yeah. Which then kind of begs the question, how was this promoted? Like was this a joke? Were people aware of the joke? Was Mrs. Miller in on the joke or not? Yeah, there's there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions, and the more you read about it, the less there are definitive answers. Because there's a lot of different perspectives on this, and different people have different memories and different sides of the story of how this all went down. As far as I can tell, Capitol Records basically released this in a kind of like straight, like playing it straight fashion. They didn't present it as a comedy album per se. You know, it's uh, billed as like the new sound of Mrs. Miller and it's called Mrs. Miller's Greatest Hits. So I think part of why it sold sold so well is people were just maybe a little confused or a lot of people probably thought it was funny or people just had to hear this 
weird record that just came out on Capitol and like <laughs> this song that was on the radio a little bit at that point. Yeah, I can see the, you know, at this point, recording technology was not democratized. So the idea that they were kind of these studios were a space that only, you know, the very talented and exclusive people had access to. And so I think just the notion that this major label would release something like this was mind boggling to people and they just had to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of conflicting stories specifically about to what degree Mrs. Miller was in on the joke, because obviously this is, this is presented as a joke. It was the primary reason why this got big. She claims that she was initially told that the music was an experiment. And as far as I can tell, she went into this with the idea that she was being completely serious. Music was her hobby and she was happy that this big record label had recognized her talent and wanted to put the record out. However, it does seem that the majority of capital executives were very intentionally doing this to laugh at her and capitalize off of this. There's a lot of reports that Mrs. Miller was a very sweet and yet very naive person. And it seems that there was a lot of blurred lines at times of mm -hmm. her playing along and kind of laughing with people and then eventually deciding, you know what, this is, this is not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it seems exploitative on capital's part. Definitely. Definitely. On the other hand, Fred Bach, who we've mentioned, who arranged and conducted the album and had been working closely with Mrs. Miller for a number of years at this point, he claimed that they were very clear to her that the songs would be presented in a funny way and the intent was to make people laugh. And there's plenty of live footage from around this time of Mrs. Miller performing these songs and appearing to be in on the joke and like laughing along with the audience and seems to be just enjoying the attention, which to a certain degree makes sense you know like she was she was in the spotlight for just under two years she had some major television appearances played some huge gigs made a bunch of money sold a ton of records charted but you know it's an awkward situation for sure there's also tons of extremely cringy interviews i mean any female artist being interviewed in the 60s on TV is probably going to be a very cringy interview, but the Mrs. Miller stuff is like a little much. You know, there's old white men being like, oh, your husband doesn't mind you not cooking the meals, mm -hmm. going out and singing these songs. It's like, it's ridiculous. The, the treatment that she received was absurd. Yeah. Later on, Mrs. Miller stated that I don't sing off key and I don't sing off rhythm. They got me to do so by waiting until I was tired and then making the record. Or they would cut the record before I could become familiar with the songs. At first, I didn't understand what was going on, but later I did, and I resented it. Yeah, I, I got the impression that they would take the weaker takes, they would use the weaker takes, or, yeah, do things, manipulate her in ways so that it, it would be a worse performance. Sure. And then, it, you know, it gets weird because like we said, Fred Bach is her friend who's arranging this. So, you know, is he just being exploitative? Is he 
thinking that it's all innocent fun and not realizing that she's actually getting hurt in the process. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's very blurry lines all the way through this. But yeah, there are stories of producers in these sessions purposely counting her in a half beat off or in the wrong key. Um, supposedly they took the worst takes of all the sessions and used that for the album. And like I said, there's a lot of evidence that Capitol executives were aware that Mrs. Miller was serious and were aware that she thought she was being signed for her talent and they were explicitly taking advantage of her and laughing behind her back the whole time. Oof. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, Mrs. Miller is definitely a better singer than she is presented on here. However, it definitely seems like Mrs. Miller is not a great singer and would probably be making a lot of these mistakes in a regular setting. However, is she still a better than average singer in the context of like a sweet old lady singing in her church choir? She's, you know, no worse than anybody else in that situation, but (laughs) throw her into this highly manipulated situation, and put her on a a hit record and suddenly it it looks a whole lot different. And yeah. Yeah. And when you're presented having recorded many a song at this point in my life when you record into a microphone it is wholly unforgiving and any little like flaw becomes like very obvious so i feel like that uh is you know we're used to extremely good singers performing flawless performances so it makes sense that they would be able to get someone who's not an incredible singer on a microphone and then it ends up not sounding very good. Yeah. (laughs) And also most of the time when those incredible singers are being recorded, the producers in the studio are intentionally removing any of the flaws or fixing the (laughs) flaws to make them sound even better than they actually are. (laughs) Not accentuating them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also Mrs. Miller was, I believe, 59 when she was recording these songs. So it's like, you know, she's well past her prime. She was probably a better singer when she was in her 20s or 30s, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got those early Mrs. Miller records. They're dope. (laughs) For the true heads, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you guys want to hear another track before we discuss more? Yeah. All right, cool. Are we going to do the aforementioned A Hard Day's Night? That is the one we're going to hear, side A, track three. It's been a hard day's night, and I'm living like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the thing that you do, it'll make me feel all right. Just to hear you say You're gonna give me everything Sleeping like a 
come back to when i'm hearing these songs is just the sense of how much fun mrs miller was actually having in these recording sessions i mean there's points in these tracks where you can hear her laughing a little bit in between like she's having a good time music has been her lifelong passion and hobby and she's thrilled to have this opportunity to record these songs in a studio with professional musicians which speaking of there's some actually like relatively legendary players on this on bass. We've got Jimmy Bond who worked with Phil Spector and the Beach Boys. And then on drums, we have a bona fide session legend. The great Earl Palmer is playing drums on this record who has played with tons of musicians, including little Richard, David Axelrod, Dinah Washington, and Tom Waits, just to name a few. Wow. That's a wide range. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, there's just, there's a sense of joy in here. And as Jeremy touched on, you know, what is, what is the important thing about music? Is it someone who is the master of their craft and has spent a long time perfecting their instrument of choice? Or is it the person who is just completely raw and honest and putting a part of themselves into the music and being vulnerable in front of everyone? There's definitely something to be said for both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if it brings the performer joy and that will translate, communicate that to the audience, you're doing your duty as an artist or you're, you know, like, I think this record brings a lot of people joy. You know, if it's laughter, great. Yeah. I think that joy, as you mentioned, comes through in her performance and to me elevated it past i don't know i felt like if if there wasn't that this whole project would just be kind of cringy and like oh they just tricked this person and it yeah and there are there are cringy elements to it when you know that portion of the story but I, you know, I think if this was just bad and didn't have redeeming qualities that it wouldn't have sold like it did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the fact that it was such a big seller says something about it contains something that people need yeah. or, or wanted. There's some definite magic in these grooves, for sure. It kind of made me think about how I feel like this happens every like so often where a quote-unquote bad singer becomes super famous in my lifetime William Hung was a big one from American yes. Idol and then one that is near and dear to my heart Rebecca Black's Friday mm -hmm. was huge and I played that song every Friday at my work for years still do occasionally <laughs> still go back and visit it I know every word to that song and it's like long, long ago, stop being ironic, and I just like it now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, I had those artists on my list of, of comparisons. You know, we talked about Florence Foster Jenkins being the precursor, but this 
this weird little corner of the music industry has always existed. I mean, even more modern, you know, you got Corey Feldman out there dropping these absolute stinkers of singles right now, but there's something to that as well. And, you know, Wing was another artist in more recent times that is in a similar situation to this. There's, it's an interesting, complicated history. There was that, there was that recent song, Red Dress by Sarah Brand. Mm -hmm. Oh, that one, she felt too in on it to me. Yeah. I didn't like it. Yeah, I think it was this, even possibly some kind of experiment, like sociological experiment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah too self-conscious for you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let me round off this Mrs. Miller bio. So this album was a surprise hit, regardless of what the intention or hopes were. I think this ended up being much bigger than probably anybody could have really predicted. And Capital, and as a result, Capital quickly rushed Mrs. Miller back into the studio and dropped a second album that same year in 1966 called Will Success Spoil Mrs. Miller. And then the following year, a third album, The Country Soul of Mrs. Miller, came out in 1967. And then after that, she was either dropped from the label or possibly quit. There is a story that when she had finally had enough, she stormed into the Capitol Records building, found a life-size cardboard cutout of herself, stomped all over it, and then demanded to be released from her contract. Damn. Uh, who knows if that's true or not, but I hope so, because that sounds pretty badass. She's going like Ice Cube up in there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. So in 1968, her husband passed away. As we mentioned, he was quite a bit older than her. And that same year, she released her final album on the small Amaret label. This one is a pretty strange record. It was called Mrs. Miller Does Her Thing. And on the cover, she's wearing a psychedelic dress and winking while holding a plate of green brownies that are... Oh, man. Very obviously <laughs> suggestive. <laughs> this record featured tracks called Mary Jane, The Roach, <laughs> Granny Bopper, and Renaissance of Smut. What? Oh, was, wow. Did, did Rick James produce this? <laughs> I don't know what was going on. It's a very strange, very disturbing psychedelic record. And apparently, Mrs. Miller, once again, as we've stated, a very naive person, was not really aware of the suggestive nature of these songs and artwork until after the album was released and when she found out that she was being turned into some sort of like counterculture symbol she was horrified and disgusted and completely retired from the music business or at least from working with labels ever again she self-released a few 45s in the early 70s that went nowhere Apparently, after leaving the label, she took more vocal lessons and for a little while was determined to make it as a legitimate singer and try and get rid of the novelty singer label that she had been branded with. But it, you know, obviously did not work. Oh, wow. Rebecca Black did that exact same thing. Interesting. Far out. Yeah. After that, Mrs. Miller lived quietly in California, continued her frequent charity work right up until her death in 1997 at the age of 90. Wow. Yep. So a lot to think about. A lot to unpack. A lot to ponder. What a life. What a life. What a career. What a music business. 
one of the more interesting articles that I read while preparing for this was actually written by a Patreon subscriber of ours, Skip Heller, wrote an article about Mrs. Miller in the Cool and Strange Music magazine back in the 90s. And there's one quote from it. Oh, shit. Yeah. There's one quote from it that I really like. And he's comparing Mrs. Miller to the work of famous B-movie director Ed Wood Jr., who did Plan 9 from Outer Space. And Glenn or Glenda. Yes. And was portrayed by Johnny Depp. In In the Tim Burton bio pick of... True. Yeah. So Skip said... As does the work of Plan 9 director Ed Wood Jr., Mrs. Miller gives us something in which there is so much human charm that we are disarmed by it. We laugh at first because the ineptitude is so striking, but the enthusiasm, heart, and above all, frailty touches the heart. Ed Wood and Elva Miller make us happy, and in ways that neither could have ever foreseen. Huh. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up right there. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you know, there's more recent examples of that. The room comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what you said about the Sarah Brand Red Dress song, Jeremy. You're right. Like, it's it's when the artists aren't knowingly creating something that's unique and maybe, you know, not the standard, the norm that's expected, that it has that connecting charm to it, that something that's self-conscious just doesn't, can never achieve. Yeah. And, you know, this is also part of the general outsider music tradition as well. And, you know, there's other sides of that, like the band Half Japanese, you know, that is aware that they are not making technically proficient music, but is just fully leaning into that and embracing the amateurish, mm-hmm. the amateur nature of it. Mm-hmm. Or uh, there's this genre called punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to know how to play your instruments. It's just punk rock. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I I feel like we've done a little bit of penance for our, our Lynn Larson. I feel like we were Capitol Records and Lynn Larson was Mrs. <laughs> Miller. So I uh, formally apologize to any Larson heads out there. Yes. Yeah. We won't be mean-spirited in the future here. We have atoned. <laughs> Unless we cover another Neil Diamond record, then I'm going to fucking let loose. Yeah, or when we get to that godly and cream snack attack record, Jeremy. <laughs> it's coming. Oh, I, I had this vacation I forgot to tell you guys about. <laughs> it's coming right up. It's coming whenever that is. <laughs> well, before we exit, don't you guys both have something going on today, happening today? Yes. Oh, yeah. I got so excited by talking about Mrs. Miller. I forgot to hype my own shit on this episode. Hype it. Yeah. I have a new record out. It was actually by the time this came out, it'll have been available for one full week. So I'm assuming it's completely sold out by this point, and I don't even need to tell anyone. But I have a new record out. It's called Hard Friends. It's out on the Lurker Bias cassette label based out of Chicago. And it features collaborations with a bunch of my friends, including a track with you boys on it. That's true. The I'd Buy That Track. Yeah. That's right. We we recorded that almost two years ago. (laughs) Yeah, this is a project I started towards the beginning of the pandemic. And the concept was that I made a bunch of tracks using only turntable and 
404 sampler heavily inspired by like minimalism and broken beat experimental stuff and then each track that i made i sent to a different musician friend of mine and had them edit or add to it in any way that they wanted to and the result is this real weird real interesting collaboration record that you can hear on Bandcamp, and i don't know pick up a tape on the black market since it's probably sold out at this point but maybe not check it out lurkerbias.bandcamp it's called hard friends right hard friends by dj hard bargain and uh jeremy you have a record coming out today i do i have a record coming out today i'm bashful so i don't like to plug my stuff but here i am jeremy ruggles i put out an album called radical is my brand which is a little tongue-in-cheek a little haha <laughs> it's uh it's sad bastard music if you're into that you like a lot of words and people trying to be cool. Uh, I made vinyl for the first time in my life, so that was very he, exciting he for me. He pressed them himself right here in his living room. Hand-carved. I whittled them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whittled each record. And they sound great, let me tell you. Yeah. I'd like, I have my headphones on, and I'd play like 10 seconds, and then I'd whittle that 10 seconds into the record, and i just... Each one. So, yeah. JeremyRuggles.Bandcamp.com or DiamondWavePress.Bandcamp.com You can pick up a vinyl or cassette or you can just listen to it for free on all those internet online things. It's out there. That's all I can stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wonderful self-promotion. All right, well... Happy April Fools. Is that something you say or you just say April Fools? I don't know if anyone ever says happy April Fools. <laughs> happy April, you fools. You fools. Well, let's go ahead and let's leave them with one more greatest hit from the great yeah. Mrs. Miller. This is the aforementioned These Boots Were Made for Walking. One of my favorite songs on this album. Her version of it is so interesting and so fun. Can't say enough good things about Mrs. Miller. Pick this record up, pick them all up, and if you find that last weird psychedelic one, send me a copy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out for that one. That sounds incredible. Yeah, that sounds either incredible or tragic that they yeah. like tricked her even more thoroughly again. Yeah. That... <laughs> I know, that, but it like it wasn't even a major label at that point either. It was like some weird CD small time label. It was like, how do we re-trick and reinvent and rebrand Mrs. Miller for the hippie generation? That's what we need to do. Wow, bizarre. All right, these boots are made for walking. Thanks for listening. I am your host, Sean Hartman. I am your host, Peter Cook. April <laughs> Fools. I'm Jeremy. <laughs> Got him. Got him. And I am your main host, Peter Cook. (laughs) No joke. Bold. (laughs) You keep saying you got something for me. Something you call love but confess You've been a messin' where you 
never shouldn't have been a messin' Now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Keep lying when you ought to be truthin'. You keep losing when you ought to not bet. You keep saying when you ought to be a changin'. What's right is right, but you ain't been right yet. These boots are made for walkin', and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk on. Oh, for you.